Hey everybody, welcome back to the Combat Chain. I'm your host, Patrick Shaw, and I have uh, just a whole mess of successful Canadian flesh and blood players with me today. Uh, first, I got my co-host, Adam Philipchuk, 11th place at Canadian Nationals. Uh, Adam, how are we doing today? Hey, Pat. Uh, good to be here. We're back from Ottawa. Uh, we got in early this morning about, I think got home about two in the morning. Had a little bit of a sleep in today, and uh, yeah, uh, Nats was Nats was something else. Um, went on that. Uh, we we had a rough start in the draft, but then just went on that insane heater. And like last round was a win and in for top eight. Played against Ian Smith on Reinar, and uh, he hit me with the back to back reckless swing. Like, oh, oh, <laughs> the, the double reckless. I, I had him at one. I just needed to swing the Rosetta. And uh, even like the, the last time he attacked me, it threatened to take me to two. And I was like, I can throw the grasp in front of this, go to four, protect myself from the reckless swing. And I thought I made the big brain play, but I didn't account for the double reckless swing. Yeah, you can't at that point, right? You can't. You, yeah. can, you can only can only do so much. Yeah. That's we, one of those right, variants, right? The variance happens. We're proof that it exists. <laughs> you know what after everything's said and done though i'm i'm really proud about uh, my performance this weekend and uh i'm looking forward to the next one we've got uh we're in we're in 41st on lifetime xp uh, after this weekend and looks like we're locked for worlds so hey excellent excellent but i will i will uh, actually i will not be at worlds i wouldn't oh. be at worlds anyways as a like a world's competitor but i will not be in san jose that weekend i can cannot get there unfortunately that's uh um but you're i you know we've talked about this off air but you know i just want the the flesh and blood world to recognize adam Philipchuk's progress as a high level competitor going from oh four uh in in new jersey yeah uh right and now you're you were literally one win away from top eighting uh canadian nationals which arguably is the probably the toughest non-U.S. nationals uh, competition uh, in the world, I'd say. Canadians are are tough. There, it's a it's a tough field, and you're you're right in there. Oh, thank you. Um, but that's uh, that's enough about me. Uh, we should get on to. Let's do it, ladies and gentlemen. The doctor is in. As of this recording, he is the reigning U.S. and now Canadian national champion, Tarek Patel. Tark, thank you for coming on to the pod. And as prestigious as your win is, you are also the first person to return to the show as a two-time guest. So you were racking up these accolades. How are you doing today? Well, I'm honored to be invited back. I had fun talking to you guys last time. And I just want to correct you on one thing, okay? Canada Nats is harder than the U.S. Nationals. So ah! uh, you got to check your facts. <laughs> As it's going to be, uh, I, I would definitely be more worried if I was playing Canadian than I am in you. I'm not going to, as if I'm going to make an impact in U.S. Nats. I'm not going to go anywhere there, but I would definitely be scared to to play up north than a, uh, than I would down here. So you might be right. I'm mostly kidding. There's, there's amazing players in both America and Canada. It's kind of just a different vibe, though. In Canada, it's a very, it's a much more uh, smaller pool with a higher density of, of higher skill players. 
And uh, America felt like almost like a larger calling kind of environment, right? You're in this giant convention center. There's 500 plus people vying for that top eight. So I'd say different atmospheres, different types of tournaments, but uh, overall, both are equally as difficult. The Canadian almost translates more into like a pro tour style environment at that point, yeah? Yeah, it's almost like a really niche invitational, I would say. Mm -hmm. You know, just looking around at my draft pod, it was insane. We had like... Uh, Mike C, who's the top eight competitor, great wizard player. We had David Rude to his left. We had Yuki two ta- two spots down. We had myself. Uh, the table behind us had like Isaac. So like, just in like the top two draft pods alone, there'd be like five or six people that you could easily point out. Be like, they have a very reasonable chance to top eight any event, not just Canadian nationals. Like we're talking pro tours or even worlds. So just quite a high density of skill level all around. Absolutely. Um, so first, congratulations on yes. winning Canadian Nats. That is, uh, as we just discussed, it is a, a huge and tough accomplishment. Uh, on a, on uh, it is a huge and tough accomplishment alone, uh, just to do that. Uh, Yuki Lee Bender, friend friend of all of us, friend of the pod, uh, guest of uh, guest of the pod, not too long ago. Uh, she does say. Uh, when asked, I asked everybody for community questions. She said she didn't want to ask a question, but she did want to say, I'd like to congratulate Tarek on the big win. Well-deserved, and I'm looking forward to whenever our next game is. <laughs> yeah, Yuki's an awesome person. I, I got to meet her really for the first time more in depth this weekend. We were in talking shop for a little bit before my top eight match. Uh, she helped me theorize to like be root in some capacity. So just the way her, her brain works uh, on this game is like, she's kind of next level compared to most other people I've ever talked to before. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm excited to, you know, hopefully see Yuki a little bit more, you know, she lives West coast. I live East coast, but uh, she's quite a uh, special human being. So I hope I get to talk to her more about flesh and blood and see her at more events in the future. Absolutely. Now you just finished leaving an incredibly unique mark on this game as a multinational champion. Now that you've had a moment to sit and reflect, I'm going to start off with our first community question from flake. Of the Instant Speed Podcast, Flake asks, which title do you covet more, the Canadian or U.S. Championship? <laughs> uh, I covet them both equally. The title I covet the most is probably reigning North American champion. I think that's Ooh. the coolest. I actually said it in the car ride up where like somebody was talking about prizes and I had not, I sort of got looked at what the top eight prizes were. I still actually don't know, don't even know how much money I'm getting or like what any prize breakdown was because the only thing that mattered to me was, was coming first place or winning because I wanted the memory or the experience of saying I was at one point the reigning Canadian and U.S. national champion. So I think the both titles together are what is uh, most important to me. I don't think either one is more important than the other. That's fair. That's fair. That's a good answer. I like that. Um, In our last interview with you, you stated your goal in Flesh and Blood was to play a perfect tournament. How close to that was this one? Mm, Not close. I got, (laughs) well, over the board, I actually say I played pretty well. Um, I made a couple errors. errors. Uh, Day one, uh, my last round of Classic Constructed, it's actually on uh, tape that I can go back and watch it. But I played against like a very, very anti-fatigue, anti-old him dash control deck. We're talking like 20 plus defense reactions. Uh, usually a matchup that's pretty close on winnable. And I thought I played 
extremely well, almost perfectly, up to like one or two turn cycles in the late game. And I think I made like a minor error. And I've really gone back over the last 24 hours and dissected that game. And I think I had a win. Um, had I, it's a little niche, it's a little technical, but like I, I had a turn that I could have pushed an extra damage, it would have forced him to block with an extra card that translates to like 10 life saved and it, it snowballs from there. So I'm pretty sure I messed up that match and I, I wish I can go back and look at it. And then the other match, which is also on camera that I think I made a mistake in, was my match, my draft match against Yuki. Uh, there came a point where she attacked with a Kyloria, I believe, in our limited game. Both our decks were very subpar. And I tanked on it for a bit. And I had a feeling she already had the Ember Moss Senpai. But I think at that point, I, I should have just let her draw her card. And then taken the Senpai like I did. And then just kind of gone face and try and draw my Popper uh, like I did in the next turn. So I think that was a mistake. Um, Matt Rogers is the one that actually kind of pointed it out to me. He messaged me later on in the night. And we we had a an interesting talk about that line. Uh, in that in that game because I wasn't winning a long game I was going to fatigue before her so I need to pick a spot a little bit earlier uh, to kind of just try take out lethal and uh, I think that was the spot to do it so to answer that was a long-winded way of saying no I did not play a perfect tournament <laughs> that's fair enough fair enough I think we can all uh, 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 commiserate on the uh, the pers- you know s- small percentage play that may or may not have cost us uh, a game here. I think Adam, you can, you can especially. <laughs> I, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've been that winning and I've been running over and over in my head. And um, if only like there was two critical spots where I could have possibly played around, well, not necessarily played around, but just like put myself in a position where those reckless swings wouldn't have gotten me. Uh, one was when uh, I, on a Mordred Tide turn, I ended on an Amplify the Arc Knight, and instead of making two rune chants, I may, only made one. And uh, he, uh, when he got me with the Reckless Swing, he was he was at one. I was just trying to push that last point in. Uh, and then the other thing was I could have blocked with uh, Creepers at one point and kept myself at five instead of four. So I, uh, I can definitely relate there, Pat. And yeah. Excellent, excellent. Uh, so, Tarek, it, it feels like a bit of a whirlwind for everyone transitioning from PT little to national season. Uh, tell us a little bit about the journey from Pro Tour to getting to Canadian Nats here. Yeah, so there wasn't much turnaround time, uh, especially for me. I was kind of gallivanting throughout Europe, even before the Pro Tour, and then about a week and a half, two weeks after. So I myself went down to um, Nice for about a week. Uh, mm-hmm. Hung out there, enjoyed the countryside. Uh, we did Paris as well along the way. Uh, got some photos with the friends. Um, and then we ended our trip in Barcelona and then finally flew home. So I got back to Canada the week before Canadian Nationals, actually. Um, headed over to Harry T. We did a practice draft just to kind of get refreshed with the format. Uh, played a little class constructed. And from there, uh, just kind of went in and played the deck that we've been kind of working on since the Pro Tour. Uh, Nick Butcher, my teammate, uh, he won Australian Nationals the week before. So uh, we had I had a very good blueprint to kind of work from and kind of iterate and test on from there. And I think we did make the better the deck better in the week we had uh, from Australian Nationals to Canadian Nationals. And I think Matt's going to have an even more refined deck uh, for his next week uh, in, in New Zealand coming up. So uh it'll be good to see and you know i hope he uh 
he wins his nationals and we get the three peats. So that would be a really <laughs> cool thing to, talk, to say. Uh, now you mentioned Nick Butcher. Now there are two members of Team Dragon Shield that have now captured national championships. How much pressure are you putting on Matt Rogers to take it home in New Zealand? Are you are, are you now like just really just egging him on? Do you, you're going to give him a whole bunch of shit if he doesn't do it? How did how, what's what's Matt's uh, feelings right now? I we have we put no pressure on Matt. What's actually funny is I think the New Zealand community has taken it upon themselves to stop this before it happens. So I got a bunch of messages from people in New Zealand be like, just so you know, we're we're headhunting Matt. Like <laughs> we're not letting him win. So uh, this is born from outside of our group. I didn't even know this was a thing, and I think it's the community's taking it upon themselves to make it a thing. So. <laughs> Only since I was messaged about it did I say to Matt, yeah, you have to win your three-peat then because all these people are trying to uh, cockily stop you or cock-block you for winning. So now you have to go out and win. <laughs> uh, now, between the – so are, is there currently three members of Team Dragon Shield? There were four. But it seems like there's three of you as the public face right now. Is that is that is three the the number right now? Yeah, I'd still say Rob's, you know, in my life, in my heart. I think about him daily when I go to sleep. But uh, real life takes priorities, and that goes for any of us, right? If tomorrow something came up with work or my girlfriend or life, then I would step away from flesh and blood in a heartbeat. And Rob's the same way, you know, uh, he has things going on in his personal life that take priority over a card game. At the end of the day, we are just playing a game, and and life comes first. So uh rob's taking a bit of a hiatus right now um nothing nothing's wrong with him you know everybody asks you know is rob okay rob okay uh he's completely fine he's just taking a step back focusing on his life and he'll be back to flesh and blood at some point just uh he's taking a hiatus uh for at least this year calendar year 2022 well that's good that's actually great to hear um now with team dragon shield is there been kind of an overarching testing and prep goal that is encompassing you have pro tour you now have nationals and now we're transitioning into worlds has this been is this like one big uh like training event where these events are lining up to peak at worlds or how are you approaching basically this whole this whole mess of big high level events that have taken place over the last couple months and and culminating presumably with the world championship yeah, we're taking events kind of one event at a time because every event's kind of been unique, right? We have Jersey that was Starvo Chain Prism. We had uh, Pro Tour 2, which was Briar. It was a pretty open metagame, honestly. We ended up on Dash, so just a very different metagame. And now with Prism gone, we have, again, another completely new metagame with Dromai kind of picking up. We have Icelander, we have the Old Man, we have Briar, we have Viscerize. So... Uh, we're going to take it one event at a time. Right now, our priority is to get Matt in shape for uh, his his nationals uh, in three days. So I've been playing a lot of Fab, or I guess Talishar now, I guess it's called, uh, against him, trying to uh, run whatever decks he needs me to into him. Uh, once I get off this call, that's what I'll probably be doing next. Um, and yeah, so yeah, just kind of taking it one event at a time. Once we get done from this, then we'll turn our attention to uh, what we think the world's metagame will be, and if LSS decides to shake up the format, we'll we'll take it in stride. Do you think they will? Do you think that there is possibly mm. something coming down the pipeline? 
I don't think so. I think it would be a bit premature. I think the format's kind of in a healthy spot, right? You know, mm -hmm. obviously Oldham's a good deck and it's been winning, but you look at the top eight and it's been pretty diverse almost across uh, the world, right? In in Canada, we saw one Fi. In UK, I think we had three Fi's. In Canada, we had two Rhinars. In Australia, they had like uh, multiple Icelanders. Canada had multiple Icelanders. So like there's this good representation of a variety of decks um you know most people are happy they're refreshed that they don't see room blade anymore there's zero room blades in canada uh fives popping up here and there so i think the metagame is pretty diverse and i think oldham is beatable uh in its current state um i think it just needs a little bit more time to shake out so i think it would be a bit premature if lss does something but you know i'm not the brains behind the operation i can only kind of say what i feel that's fair. Did, did you did you buy into the, uh, the 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 kind of foreboding of Prism hitting LL to to that it would turn into this you know this cold hard winter of of Guardian just no no opening for anything other than Guardian control or it, or is this kind of fleshing out as you as you thought it might. Well, yeah, it's a bit hyperbolic, right? But everybody kind of knew that Oldham is an extremely powerful deck that only had a couple weaknesses. So, um, but Dromai does a pretty good job at you know establishing multi-threat board states that require multiple action points, which Guardians kind of choked on. Um, Icelander does a good job about kind of drawing out the game uh, in a way that Oldham can't just block all the arcane damage forever. Uh, Fi does a good enough job that goes wide um, so that you can't purely fatigue a Fi player either. So actually every single of the new heroes in Uprising can actually <clears throat> just straight up beat a pure fatigue Oldham. So it's forced Oldhams to kind of build their deck in a way to be more aggressively slanted for the new Uprising heroes. And what that's done is it's kind of opened up you know weaknesses that other heroes can exploit right if an aggro if an olden deck is playing less defense reactions you know it, it opens the window for runeblade even you know suddenly briars aren't getting fatigued as easily viscerize aren't getting fatigued as easily you know if runeblade is back in the discussion now we have you know other decks around it also opens the, the door up for reinar uh which is supposed to be a bad matchup for oldham um, so it forces Oldhams to kind of build in a different kind of way. So I think it's too early. We'll see how the metagame shakes out. If you ask me in a month, I might have a different answer. You 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 mentioned how the uprising heroes have 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 come in with the with the card pool in the game system as it stands. Are you happy? Are you satisfied with where the game is right now mechanically and with the with the heroes and abilities and such? Like how, how what are your thoughts on on basically the game system as a whole as we stand coming into worlds? Mechanically, I'm okay. I think the game is extremely fun and it does a lot of things well. What I would personally like to see better is something they kind of dabbled in a little bit in Uprising, where draconic cards were primarily red. So you got a lot of these singleton cards like uh, Blazing Headlong, for example, that it really only comes in a red. It doesn't come in a yellow or a blue. And I think that would be interesting if they explore that concept a little bit further. So we get more unique cards per set rather than, you know, three copies of Autumn's Touch or three copies of Winter's Grasp, right? That will take up physical slots and booster packs and set space, but they don't actually add anything more to the kind of 
diversity of the overall metagame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can definitely get behind that. Uh, get rid of the yellows unless they're unless they're <laughs> doing something important. Uh, coming out of Lil, uh, there were many stories of players who were shocked that they couldn't manage their eating how they envisioned, and that it could have taken a toll on their play throughout the weekend. Uh, with so much travel surrounding uh, these events, especially internationally, how how do you manage your physical and mental wellness to ensure your weekend isn't affected? <laughs> you know, it's fine. I've been going to conventions and tournaments since I was a kid, so it's really just become second nature to me. And I think Adam and I were talking about this a little bit before the podcast, but when I go to a tournament, I almost never eat during the day. Like I have a bottle of water with me that I'll refill or try and get another one from the venue. I might have like a protein bar, nuts or whatever, like snacks, just so like if my stomach's like physically hurting, I can just shut it up. Uh, But I really don't eat after breakfast. I'll eat a good solid breakfast, you know, eggs and toast. If it's like I'm at a hotel like like this, this weekend we were at like the Holiday Inn. So I think I had like two boiled eggs and oatmeal every morning for breakfast. And then I would just go the whole day drinking water and snacking on a fig bar that the judges would give me or whatever and eat dinner at like 9 9 p.m so that was that's basically how i do it it doesn't bother me i actually find that i kind of get into this like weird meditative like zone in state when i'm like hungry and tired but also kind of like excited and into the tournament i can't really explain it but it's just kind of like my happy spot and i don't feel hungry i don't feel tired and it's just my process and that's what i do just in the zone yeah, right. That's we've been there. I haven't been there in a long, long time, but I think I, I know, I know where that is. I used to, back in the day. Um, is burnout something that you're you're worried about? Uh, either coming into this, like we're, we're taught. I, I I'm circling this all around, kind of a peaking into world championship here but are are you concerned with the with the number of events that you're attending and do you in, do you intend on managing that in in some capacity or you know how are you approaching burnout management yeah so burnout's always on my mind to some degree but i i will say it's one of my greatest strengths but one of my biggest flaws at the same time my girlfriend loves to point it out but i am a hyper obsessive individual in almost every aspect of my life. And I I get that from my father, who's very much the same way. But when I'm obsessed with something or into something, there's no real such thing as burnout, because that's like all I want to do. For me, burnout's like when that thing just becomes not interesting anymore. And so for things that I care about, I will try and, you know, add a variety, right? Like I will go to the golf course for two hours a day and just hit balls and I can just turn off my brain and, and do something mindless like that. Or, you know, that's where work and jobs come in because having the monotony of something like a job then puts in perspective when you play a game, like, wow, this really is fun or socializing with my girlfriend. Uh, we've been pretty active recently, like socially, we're going to a wedding this weekend in California. Uh, we have like three more weddings to attend to in the next like three weeks. So, our schedule's full. We we see friends almost you know every week, whether it's old high school friends, new flesh and blood friends, and so forth. So, uh, burnout's not a real big deal for me for right now because I think one, I enjoy it so much and I'm obsessed with it, so it wouldn't burn me out anyways. And then two, I, I have a pretty good variety in my life right now between my girlfriend, work, social life, other hobbies and activities, flesh and blood. So, not a concern for me right now. Adam, what about you? Is burnout a concern? 
Uh, it's, it's interesting. I'm usually, my track record is like, I would usually like get into something really heavily and then like within like a month or two, I'm like over it and I'm on to the next thing. And flesh and blood was like the first thing in a while in my life that kind of came along and I just couldn't get enough of it. And there was always, there's always something to strive for. And I'm, yeah, no, I'm not worried about burning out anytime in the near future. Like with each big event we're doing better and there's just there's we're getting closer to getting that metaphorical carrot or whatever um no i i think i think i'm in it for the long haul excellent excellent i can tell you that i i don't know if i necessarily feel the the burnout from the game itself but i know adam we, we've talked about this off air but after us nets i'm taking i'm taking a break from the game itself, but it's more of a uh, uh, life balance thing more than uh, like I could play, I can play flat uh, flesh and blood 24 hours a day. And that's part of the problem. Right. So, and as a husband, father, worker, et cetera, et cetera, uh, flesh and blood has increasingly taken more and more of that, right. That space that would otherwise be filled with, the better parts of my life, the you know, family, friends, uh, work, etc. So without, if Worlds was a possibility, that probably would be extended in through November. But without Worlds as a possibility, we've, I've, you know, we've, I've settled down with with the misses and said, all right, once I come back from US Nats, I'm probably done. The grind. I'm still gonna. We're still gonna content. You know, that's that's still happening. But in terms of of how much time I've I've actually put into into the game, uh, I'm probably gonna wait till after Dynasty to see where uh, where the game is uh, and see where I fit in uh, once that happens there. So you know, it's you gotta you gotta take care of those things. Your your fab life balance. Yes. Yep. It's it's gotta it's something's gotta I gotta check it. I am I have an incredibly addictive personality. I've got I got a whole litany of issues throughout my life, and Fab is 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 a vice that has just replaced more dangerous vices in the past. But it's still something I gotta keep in check here once in a while, and that's putting the putting the putting the brakes on a little bit is part of part of doing that. Um, but enough about me. Back to you, Tarek. You announced at the release of your article on Dash for Channel Fireball uh, that she, Dromai, and Oldham were all in the running, with your choices narrowing to Dromai and Oldham as you got closer. What is it about Oldham that stood out to you the most and made it uh, the deck for you to play at, at Nets? The fact that I had the most reps on it and I had the least amount of unknowns. Right, like I think Dromai is an extremely powerful deck, and it's something I've continued to work and iterate on. I wrote about like my original copy of Dromai uh, about a week and a half ago now, and it was met with skepticism because I was playing Toma Findel in my list, and nobody else was really doing it at the time. Um, and now we look at the UK Nats deck uh, that put Mage Master Boots in and actually added a third copy, and I think that's just going to be the stock list going forward. Since that time, I mean, that list was written, you know, over two weeks ago. So I continuously update and tweak it as I go. It's just hard when you release an article because a lot of the time people don't realize I'm working on a deck on day one 
And by the time I finish writing the article on day four or five, submitting for editing, it doesn't come out till like day 11 or 12. And then the actual mm -hmm. deck itself may have changed like three or four times. Uh, so, you know, but the deck now looks like it's in a really sweet spot. Um, I still think Vriskarakai, I'm butchering the name, the, the three resource dragon that it's a six one uh, is oh. complete trash. But people seem to love it in the purple Discord and draw my players overall. I think it's an extremely below average card for what it does, and I think it's counterproductive to the game plan. So, um, anyways, it's not in my list, and I've actually added three pursuit of knowledges to my list for the mirror match because I already wanted three blues anyways for Icelander. So I figured this is the perfect blue card to add because it both crushes the mirror and. Uh, it's more blues that I can play against Icelander. So I've continued to work on the deck, but long story short, before Nationals, there was a lot of things that I hadn't fully figured out with Dromai, and I feel like I'd be kind of handicapping myself by by playing a deck that you know was still kind of, I'd say at like 70% potential and not in that 90 to 100% that I really wanted it to be. Dromai in particular seems to be like a... a representative of of a complexity that I've I've seen in flesh and blood where it takes Dramai has taken legitimate months of figuring out in order to get it to where it is right now like when uprising released everyone really just it seemed like cast it off and and it was the it was the casual deck it was fun fun with dragons and flesh and blood and slowly very slowly at first uh, it started to to pop up and 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 emerge, and now coming, it kind of snowballed uh, just before like, into Pro Tour uh, and now into Nationals, where it's it's becoming this force. What what do you what do you think is is the factor in in decks like Dromai and cards? I look at like Crown of Seeds when it was initially released. What is it about the, those those decks, heroes, and cards that it takes? It does take so long for players to figure them out before they become become viable. So first, let me say that the metagame is a, a very complex ecosystem, right? There's a lot of things at play that we as players don't fully realize. But I think the, the number one reason is because Dromai stood to gain the most from prisons banning or hitting Living Legend, I should say. It wasn't actually banned. But Dromai had an abysmal prison matchup, right? It, it like... The way that uh, Spectre Shield lined up against Aether Ashwings and, you know, on hit um, Heralds lined up against Dragons, it was just a kind of nightmare matchup for Dromai. And when the first set released, Dromai was like one of the first heroes I wanted to test because of how cool the mechanics were. And I like immediately put it down after it couldn't beat Phi and Prism, which at the time were the two most prevalent decks at the start of the Uprising metagame. So now that Prism's gone and Phi is on the low end, right? Dromai really doesn't have any awful matchups anymore. And and even the Phi matchup's very winnable if you play in certain ways. Uh, it's probably your worst matchup, don't get me wrong. But it's not like it's 100-0. So uh, there's a lot of play to the deck as well. You know, being a permanent base deck means that your actions have consequences that carry over through multiple turn cycles, right? If you play a, a Runeblade or a Briar deck and you mess up, uh, you know, on turn three, you have a turn for redemption on turn four or five, right? If you mess up something with a permanent, 
you know, that mistake carries turn by turn because you've played the wrong dragon. Now you have to, you're going to have to play with it for multiple turns until it dies. So uh, it's a lot more punishing and a lot more moving parts, I would say, that makes it difficult to just pick up and go like a Briar or a Fi deck. Excellent, excellent. Um, Uprising Draft uh, has been a polarizing topic for a lot of the top competitors in Flesh and Blood. Six rounds of draft in one day is a lot for anyone, and it looked like it was a little more than uh, you were expecting before the tournament started. How did you feel about the tournament structure there, and uh, would you have changed it? And also, give me your feelings on drafting Uprising. Uh, I was just surprised. Uh, usually the way they do it, or the way I'm used to doing it, is similar to how the American Nationals is structured, where you do uh, draft constructed, and then day two, and then draft constructed. Um, either way, we'd have to play the same number of rounds of draft constructed. Um, and in order to top it, you'd have to do roughly the same. So I guess my feelings for it being in that order are nothing more than just a uh, you know, psychological way of looking at it I, I was fine with it i mean it wasn't my first choice because i went to cc i had no idea that day one was going to be six rounds of draft until joel told me the literal night before um but it is what it was i, I still have to play the six rounds of cc regardless so my practice did pay off at the end of the day so um the format was fine it's just not something i was used to which was expressed in my tweet um as far as Uprising Draft, uh, I kind of talked about this ad nauseum at this point. I think majority of players feel the same way, that it's a well-designed set in terms of balance. I think any medium-level Dromai or Icelander can beat uh, medium-level Fi, but I do think each pack is kind of uh, a card or two short of, uh, of um, an optimal number, let's just say. So a lot of... Uh, committing to a hero earlier than you probably should be uh not that people are wrong for doing it but that the format allows i guess is a better way to say it leads to a lot of uh lopsided hero counts you know you see a lot of five fives two icelander one draw mic type pods uh where there really shouldn't be any and because people feel like if they pivot they're just not going to have enough playables so i think mm -hmm. that's a pretty well recognized issue across the community and i think LSS has hurt us, and hopefully going forward, we have no more 14-card packs. That is, is the 14-card pack the, the problem with that? If Would 15... I, I think you need a little bit... Personally, I would like to see like a closer to an 18-card pack, right? Even like if you had 15 cards a pack, that would give you 45 cards. The fact that you have to make a 30-card deck out of it still means you're, you need to use, you know... Um, 66% uh, or, or two-thirds of, of your entire carpool, which is just a crazy high amount. You know, I would like to see a draft format. My preference is something in the 50s because then that will give you some room to pivot and play and make reads and, you know, a little bit more throwaway picks would be nice. So I would like to see if we need to play 30 cards, maybe somewhere in the realm of like 55 to 60 would be my uh, preference mm -hmm. cards in a draft. So that would give you about 16 or 17 cards in a pack, I would say, would be a, a nice number. All right. Um, <clears throat> after the finals uh, were over, you you talked to, with uh, Frank, uh, uh, who did a terrific job casting, 
the Canadian Nats. If you guys have, haven't gotten a chance to out there in Flesh and Blood World, uh, Frank Frank Hung, uh, Lazy Dog, all over social media, uh, did it did it for it uh, feels like 26 hours so just sitting in front of a microphone and and playing it all out and he did a terrific job and he's he's a, a friend a friend of the channel so great job frank uh but he, when he was talking to you uh post finals you had mentioned that reinar was actually a matchup that you weren't very familiar with beforehand uh without letting the world know too much about your weaknesses here how many other heroes fall into that same category for you as reinar <laughs> Uh, I like to call them the boomer heroes. So Reinar, Dory, and Katsu are like, I like decks I have very little to almost no experience against because they've never really been playable since I started playing. Now Katsu I'm a little bit more comfortable with because I had a friend, uh, Alex, back in Florida who was like Katsu guy when I first started playing. And so I have a lot of experience playing against him. Uh, One of the earlier iterations I had on Lightning Briar was actually tested against his Katsu deck. Uh, and and that was fun to, uh, as a newer player, to beat up on a, a boomer of the game. But uh, we ended up becoming really good friends. And <laughs> uh, so I do have a little bit more experience on Katsu. And then, of course, David Rude plays Ninja. He's kind of a ninja guy in Toronto. So Katsu I probably have the most familiarity with. Dory and Reinar are just like, they've been non-existent in the metagame since I've started playing the game. So... Uh, no idea. Actually, it was funny. I, I played like Ry- against Dory player at one event, and I had to keep asking Rob, like, is this what I did right? Is this what I did wrong? Because I think he used to be a Dory main before he was a Bravo guy. So, uh, yeah, I would say Katsu, Dory, and Ryan are the three heroes I definitely have the least experience against. Is Is Harry T just like the craziest place to go to play Flesh and Blood? Like if you just in terms of like competition, just people who walk in the door there. Uh, there's a lot of good spots in the GTA. Harry T definitely up there in terms of Toronto. Like Toronto is a big spot, right? So I don't actually live in Toronto proper. I live in like a suburb called Milton. It's about 30 minutes west of uh, Toronto proper, I would say. So if you're in the actual Toronto area, then yeah, Harry T is probably the spot to be. Um, if you're outside of it, uh, I know Chimera Games, close to our kitchen or Waterloo is really good. Um, and I'm uh, remember, I'm kind of, I'm not new to the area, but I haven't lived here in like 10 to 12 years. So there's probably more shops that I, I'm not remembering off the top of my head that are also probably really good. That's fair. That's right. What about, Anna, how, how tough is your, your local scene? comparatively speaking uh yeah no we've got some good competition uh we uh andrew Podleski being uh one of the mentionables he's uh went five and one in the constructed at uh, canadian nationals uh this year um got a couple other strong fellows uh um brandon santamore and kane wilbur and uh, a couple uh guys who ground grinded magic pretty hard so um yeah, they, they keep me on my toes. I can't get past. I, I've got I got Fino Black and James Silver and Joe Cologne and uh, Jacob Shaker. Uh, just a whole there's a whole litany of people preventing me from winning any anything meaningful in my region. <laughs> it just it's not happening right now. 
Oh, you have quite a grinder scene there, eh? Oh, oh, it's it's concentrated, but it's the the biggest problem is that the actual like uh, LGSs that host the event are so spread out. Everything's like ninety minutes from wherever you are, uh, and those guys like uh, Cologne and uh, some of the Hyperloop guys come up from from like Cologne is local to me, but he, obviously he's a Hyperlooper. They they come from all over into the New England area, and uh, Fino and Silver run a shop together, uh, and uh, they they go all over the place and play play everything. And it's yeah, there's no there, you can't miss them. <laughs> they're every skirmish, every progress. They're they're, they're doing something. Uh, so it is it is definitely it, you earn your victories uh, over there. Um, speaking of great players, there are more and more claims to the title of best player in the world in Flesh and Blood. We have Pablo Pintor, who won Pro Tour 1, Top 8 Pro Tour 2, and was just recently a runner-up uh, in Spain Nationals. We have Matt Folks, UK champ 2021 and PT2 champ, and uh, just released top of the uh, constructed ELO uh, board, I believe, number one. Uh, Michael Hamilton, two-time caller winner. And, of course, Tark Patel, multinational champion. Tark, who, who is the best player in the world right now? Well, I would take my name off that list, first of all. Um, <laughs> I, if I had to choose the list, I would say Pablo's number one, and I don't think it's particularly close. Um, and then there's just a massive amount of talent that that just goes from there. Uh, from Canada, I'd say Yuki. Uh, from America, I'd say either Fino or Michael Hamilton. Uh, from the UK, obviously Matt Folks, but uh, um, Pete Ward is also up there on my list for people that have consistently done well, um, mm-hmm. and just shown amazing skill. Um. You know, Germany, they have the juggernaut, uh, Christian Huck, um, you know, uh, Poland, just a, a massive amount of talent there. They have Ehrlich, obviously. Uh, it's Gregor Skowalski. Um, they have Duofennel, who, uh, whose actual name is eluding me right now. Um, but, uh, you know, you just go across the world. And then obviously my teammates, Matt Rogers, Nick Butcher, uh, Kale McCreeth, Hayden Dale, Brendan Patrick. Like you, you just you're talking about so much talent over the. It, it's really become a global game, right? I think gone are the days of uh, these online armories and skirmishes where there'd be a couple ringers here and there uh, that would really dominate the scene. And I think each region has their undisputed, uh, real golden talent. And uh, I couldn't definitively rank them, and nor the, I don't think it should be right. Elo, as fun as it is to look at, you know, has to be taken in perspective. Um, it would be uh, foolhardy of me to claim that I was the best player at one point just because my Elo was a certain amount. And I think we're still too new in the game to call anybody the best player in the world um, by one metric or another. Well, whether we're going by top eights, wins, Elo, whatever. I just think there's a massive amount of talent and everybody deserves recognition for what they've done. I think the fact that folks won English Nationals, Pro Tour won, absolutely amazing. You know, Pablo, the fact that he's topped literally everything <laughs> since Pro Tour won, also amazing. Uh, yeah, you could just talk about these these people forever. So, 
Uh, so you mentioned you mentioned a whole mess of incredible players uh, around the world here, and it does seem like the common denominator between them is that they've they have risen to the top of their scenes and and uh, kind of dominated uh, in their respective areas to become the best players in the world. What is the biggest factor that helps separate a group such as this from the rest of the of the so-called pack in competitive flesh and blood? What is what is what makes these players so so unique and and, and different from your just rank and file player? They're very uh, strong-willed, and that's not to say that each one of them is always right. But I've talked to a lot of these players, and they all have the confidence that what they're doing is the best thing you know they could be doing. Right? You you talk to Fino before Pro Tour two or even one he'll tell you like prism is the best thing that you could be doing and Mm -hmm. you know you talk to matt rogers and he cannot for the life of him explain to you why anybody would even consider prism before pro tour one or even pro tour two so you know two men claim they're jesus one has to be wrong right so i think everybody that's good has their own little kind of niche uh of the metagame or of the game kind of solved to a t and you know nobody can play prism like fino or nobody can play oldham like michael hamilton or nobody can play dash like matt rogers nobody can play briar like like uh matt folks um and, and it goes on and on right nobody can play as well as pinto or pablo does uh technically you know i've i've got the pleasure of watching that guy now on two pro tours I like stalking people <laughs> in a sense. Like I love mm-hmm. just being that guy, like in between yeah. rounds, like I'll just watch matches to completion, especially if I've kind of heard of, of a player and, you know, I want to learn a little bit more about them. I'll definitely go over and watch them or watch how they play. And there's some people that I've heard of and, you know, less than impressive. And then there's other people that you watch play and you're just like, okay, this person knows, you know, what's up with not just this game, but, you know, the theory that goes beyond than just what's happening in the moment. Like you can see them playing to certain things. And uh, for me, you know, Pablo really checks all those boxes, which is why I have him kind of ranked above kind of everyone else. But uh, yeah, so I'd say, you know, what separates them from just the general population, I think they have something figured out uh, in their respective kind of niches that nobody else does. That is, that is going to be my last flesh and blood question. We 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 did it. We got there, <laughs> but I'm not I'm not done entirely. Uh, so we're gonna start bringing it home here. Tark, you are in fact a practicing doctor. What is one medical fact that you wish more people believed and or listened to? Hmm. I know a fun one I like to kind of talk about with people because it's so common and prevalent in society. Is that like you know that smoked meats like cause cancer uh thing i don't know if you guys have heard of it but like there's a thing like don't eat uh like bacon because it causes cancer don't eat red meat because it causes cancer don't eat like cured meats because it causes cancer uh have you heard of that i have i i have not i i am I'm just, I, yes. <laughs> yeah. did i did i just get more cancer for dinner well no no so then that's the thing that's i love like educating people on that because it's one of those like flashy statistical uh headlines so if i like break it down for you um 
like the risk of getting colon cancer and I'm, I'm making up a number here but it holds true it's like it's something like one in one in 10 million or something like if you're a healthy individual with no uh, predisposing conditions. Like it's, it's pretty low chance that you're going to develop colon cancer, uh, throughout the course of your life. Now, if you eat smoked meats or cured meats or whatever, like bacon, your risk then doubles from one in, you know, 10 million or whatever I just said to about two in 10 million. Right. So your relative risk has doubled because it's gone from one in 10 million to two in 10 million. But your absolute risk is still basically zero percent, right? What is two and two over ten million? It's it's almost nothing. So when people like to say that, I like to counter with, well, you know, your odds of getting cancer go from zero to zero. So enjoyed all the smoked meats, uh, go for it. But yeah, that's probably my most fun fact that I enjoy. That's fair. Disgusting. I can get behind that. We used to back back in back in college. I used to. Uh, do I was in phys ed uh, as a as a concentration, and um, our or one of one of my favorite professors used to tell us that everyone everyone tries to bullshit about cardio and say like if you walk right if you if you walk it burns a higher percentage of fat than you would if you're doing like wind sprints or something like that. But at the end of the day, right, if you're doing if you wind sprint, you're burning so much more just in total that. It doesn't matter if you walked and did like a higher percentage of the calories you burned were, were to fat. The sprinting is what's actually going to make you healthier anyways. Just just do the hard work. Yeah. And it, so I actually want to say that, too, because there's actually a big misconception that calories in, calories out are the only thing that matters when it talks about, you know, weight loss and weight gain. And I think that's one of the the attitude shifts that we're going to have to be faced with and change over the next couple of years, because there's a lot more to it than just calories in, calories out. Uh, for example, there was this great book uh, I just read. It's called The Obesity Code. It was written by an endocrinologist uh, over at UFT, actually, in Toronto, uh, a hormone doctor uh, in English. And um, he was he was doing studies on both humans and, and animals and so forth. And I won't bore you guys with the details, but there was a phenomenon that we were kind of witnessing in the human population for a while now that, you know, when you drink diet sodas, for whatever reason, they lead to gain uh, weight gain right which is weird to think about because hawaii does something that's cal calorically neutral you know diet sodas have zero calories in it why why would they lead to weight gain and what they found was that when you eat something sweet whether or not it has calories your body releases something called incretins which are like little signals that it sends to your pancreas to release insulin and insulin is a growth hormone and insulin is what causes us to put on fat so just by the act of drinking a diet soda, because it tastes sweet, it primes your body for fat making. So you can be calorically neutral and still be producing fat because you are priming your body to make a fat building hormone. So it's a very interesting topic and something that we're kind of on the cutting edge of in terms of like physiology and medicine and so forth. But it goes a lot deeper than just calories in, calories out. I, I love diet soda. I've, I'm the, I am the victim of exactly what you've talked about. Um, all right. Um, one more thing. Game of Thrones. You in? You out? What are you? What are your thoughts on Game of Thrones here? And subsequently, House of Dragon. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I, I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. Um, because I've been so busy with traveling to Europe and Flesh and Blood, I am actually in my favorite position in life, which is 
when there is like three or four TV shows that I really, really want to watch, but I haven't got around to watching any of them yet. So I just watched the first episode of the new Lord of the Rings trilogy this morning, and I absolutely mm-hmm. loved it. So now I have a couple weeks to catch up on in Game of Thrones, a couple weeks to catch up on on uh, on uh, the Lord of the Rings series. I just finished watching the, Cobra, the newest Cobra Kai season, uh, the Karate Kid one. So, so good. Yeah, did, I love. Did you that watch show. the whole thing? Did you watch? Yeah, the yeah. Whole, yeah. Me and my girlfriends uh, love binging that show whenever it comes out. So love it. And uh, now I got a whole bunch of awesome TV waiting for me between now and Worlds. Cobra Kai is so much better than it has any right to be. It is such a it's such a good show. Yeah, it's, we started watching it with like low expectations, but it's actually just been uh, super fun. Yeah, it really, I, it's it's really good. I it really it hits all it, hit, it hits a lot of nostalgic buttons, and also I don't know I like how they kind of make it like make the impacts of their past like real like you can see that they're really affected by what happened in the, like in the movies and they flash back to those scenes where it's like you recognize that like they went they actually went through some really emotionally traumatizing shit uh, with some of these these people and they actually kind of address that and i i can appreciate uh appreciate that and the fight scenes are are super good gotta yeah. love them excellent all right that that does it uh, for us here. Uh, thank you, Tarek, for coming on to the combat chain. Yes, thank um, you so much for the for the second time. Uh, we appreciate you and congratulations on on your victory uh, at at Canadian Nats. And uh, we wish you the best of luck at Worlds. I thank imagine you. you're going there. Yes, yes, I will be there. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Um, this is where if you've got uh, if you've got projects, uh, things to plug, plug away. Where can we find you and your stuff? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I first want to thank, uh, most importantly, Team Dragon Shield. Without them, you know, my life would be ten times as hard. They take care of a lot of stuff from uh, products, you know, sleeves, best on the market. I don't even have to shill for them. It's just unknown thing, right? If you play with sleeves, you're probably playing with Dragon Shields. Uh-huh. Um, they help us out a ton as a team. Uh, they've been awesome to work with. Uh, if you want to find my articles, there you go. Hold up that box. If you, I guess people can't see it because it's... Oh, they can't, they can't. So, I yeah. know, I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if you guys want to follow me, I write articles on channelfireball.com uh, who's now bought by TCG Player, who is now owned by eBay. So I am a corporate man. Never thought I would say that, but corporate chill over here. Yeah, I am owned and bought and sold by eBay. Uh, so you can find me at channelfireball.com if you want to read about my deck techs or ideas that I kind of want to put out. Uh, that's where I'll write. And then if you just want to hear my thoughts and musings, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Tark Patel ten uh, is my handle. So my first and last name, and then the number ten. Uh, that's it. That's all I got to plug. And Adam, we can be found on YouTube at The Combat Chain. If you search us, you find The Combat Chain. And we just recently crossed the 300 subscriber count. So, Adam, congratulations. We did it. We got there to and the promised land. To, to, you, to you as well, Pat. We're, there's, this thing's we snowballing did. slowly. We're getting there. It is. It is. It's not, you know, it, 300 doesn't seem like a ton, but in terms of, like, market share for Flesh and Blood... It's we're a known quantity, you know, and now we're we we're we're bringing on champions as they win. It's it's <laughs> it's a it's a good it's a good place to be. Um, 
but uh, you can find us and so yeah so you can find us on youtube at the combat chain uh we just crossed 300 subscribers and to celebrate we are having a giveaway uh that we'll uh also put on twitter uh coming up here but we have uh an exclusive celestial cataclysm playmat to give away to one random youtube subscriber now if you as long as you have subscribed by uh the recording of our next podcast on the 27th where uh friend tommy fresh will be joining us uh on that episode we will we'll roll and uh get a random winner and they will get a celestial cataclysm uh play mat as a thank you to our audience for helping us climb the mountain over 300 yeah yeah super exciting uh thanks so much for your support everyone uh we wouldn't be we wouldn't be here without all of you uh, and if you'd like to support us further, we do have a Patreon. The link is below. It helps keep the lights on. It helps keep uh, our our editing software up, and uh, you know, and the mic's hot, as uh, Tommy Fresh likes to say. Um, so you can, uh, you, if you feel like supporting us there, uh, by all means, find the Patreon link below. You can find us on Twitter at the Combat Chain. You can find myself on Twitter at Pat Smash Good, and you can find Adam at Fom Tulery TCG. And uh, Tark, we like to close it out. You've done it once. We're going to do it again. I'm going to say until next week, and then we're all going to say we are closing the combat chain. All right? All right, let's do it. All right. I'm just going to do it. Uh, until next week, everybody, we're, we're closing, closing the combat, combat chain. chain. Closing the combat chain. Oh, there it is. It's